Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the DC Wash Up podcast. Now, funnily enough, we're actually not in DC. I'm here, Stephanie March, your North American correspondent, with super producer Roscoe Whalen. Taking the podcast on the road. We're on the train back from New York after what has been one of the most fascinating election nights um, I've ever personally witnessed and I feel like many people in America and across the world also feel the same. Um, It was extraordinary. Roscoe and I were both at uh, Hillary Clinton's what was supposed to be her victory party um, but ended up being quite a fizzer. We'll talk about that in a little while. How we're going to do this podcast today is a little bit differently because we've got crews all around America at the moment. Uh, We've got Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel and Brad Poulton in Pennsylvania and we've still got Michael Vinson and uh, Nick Castellaro and Brooke Wiley in New York. Uh, Steph and I are the lucky ones that have managed to go home early. Um, and there's a cast of thousands from Australia in DC <laughs> as well. So what we'll do today is Steph and I are going to go through the experience from the Hillary Clinton camp, and then we're going to get um, Brooke and Michael to reflect separately on their time at Trump HQ. And then by the time you and Zoe end up back in Washington DC, maybe Donald Trump will have met with Barack Obama, and you guys can try and catch up and talk about that one. But the way the day panned out vote-wise is just fascinating. As you all know, Donald Trump is the president-elect. He'll be the 45th president of the United States, creating history in his own way. Hillary Clinton created history in her own way as well, becoming the first female nominee for a major US political party for the presidency. Uh, It was just a crazy night, but the polls... uh, how do we say it? What was predicted in the polls did not come true and has put put paid to polling in the mainstream media. So, Roscoe, why don't you talk us through how the numbers played out? Yeah, it was... Um, the numbers were coming in pretty thick and fast from about 6, 7pm in the evening. I mean, you know, a lot of the waiting was for a lot of those East Coast uh, states to close, which is around 7 o'clock. Within that were a couple of interesting states, one of those being New Hampshire, the other one being... Virginia and Florida. Um, The numbers were coming in pretty fast over a period of time and to be honest very early on it looked like it was looking good for Hillary Clinton. I mean obviously very early on you only have one percent of the vote counted, it depends on what county those votes are coming from, Um, but truly from where we were at Clinton HQ it seemed like she was on track to do what everyone thought which was win the White House. The first batch of numbers that came out, I remember the first thing I saw was that South Carolina hadn't been called for Donald Trump. And a lot of the pundits were saying if they couldn't call that early, straight away, that meant he was likely to lose neighbouring North Carolina. Well, that couldn't have been more wrong. And that's pretty much the way the night went. I mean, it seems to me, not being a complete expert in any way, shape or form, but those losses in the southeastern states just pushed the whole contest up into the Rust Belt. The Trump camp was focused on that Rust Belt strategy from day dot, and it was really an afterthought for the Clinton camp. And those states we're talking about are the ones we all ended up watching, which is Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin. And I mean, Roscoe, did you feel towards the end when Hillary Clinton was making those trips to Michigan in the last week? I got a real sense of what on earth are you doing? I had the exact opposite feeling. I mean, to be honest, we've been trying to prep for election day for what, you know, nine, 12 months, something like that. So from a planning perspective, you know, it was all of me to work out who was going to win so we could deploy the crews accordingly. Um, And I have been 
sick in the stomach trying to work out what was going to happen for the past two weeks um, because exactly as you say you know Donald Trump was making this effort in these Midwest northern states along on the, on the Great Lakes Michigan Wisconsin um, Pennsylvania as well and Hillary Clinton went there at the very last minute and Robbie Mook, her campaign manager, had talked about how they'd seen a softening in the polls in Michigan in that kind of final week. And Michigan's a state that Barack Obama won by 10 points. And to suggest that there was enough of a softening there that it required her to make a desperation pitch there 24 hours out from the election, I mean, in hindsight, does reveal that you know they were worried about what they were seeing there. But how it was portrayed in the media was, and even by ourselves, was that she was trying to, you know, consolidate her firewall. And this firewall that they talk about is about 18 states that the Democrats had won over the past six elections. And with those 18 states, it got the candidate to 242 Electoral College votes. So, you know, just a couple of states off from claiming the White House. So the thought that she was going to those states at the end probably reflected that she was trying to consolidate that, which was a far cry from a couple of weeks before when there was talk of her winning Arizona. They even got smug enough to talk about winning Texas. They got smug enough to talk about winning the House of Representatives. Which now seems totally insane. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the polling showed that Hillary Clinton was up by around, you know, three to five points, even though polls were tightening in, in the dying days of the, the campaign. Um, the suggestion from the polling suggested that she was going to win the White House, but it was just completely off. Let's talk about what's been a really emotional now 24 hours for a lot of people in America. You and I were both at Hillary Clinton's uh, supposed election party venue last night, the Jacob Javits Convention Centre, which is the huge uh, convention centre in Manhattan that has uh, glass walls and a glass ceiling. And it was obviously a symbolic lo location chosen uh, because Hillary Clinton has spent years talking about breaking through that glass ceiling. And the mood when you got in there, even early on, was really one of a party. Everyone was expecting it to be just a massive historic celebration. She was supposed to appear on this huge blue stage that was shaped in a map of the continental United States with dozens of flags behind her and a big H for Hillary sign behind her. Um, and you know, as people started flooding in, they all had American flags and they were cheering and they were waving and there was the American anthem being played and it was just such a joyous kind of, and it felt like a real fait accompli and that's what the polls had said going into election day. But just the way the mood in that room shifted over the night, I can't even do it justice with words. And the, the best way I've found to describe it, I think, is it's like when the pressure drops, when you know that it's about to rain and all of a sudden everything shifts and the mood just became so dark. And I think Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel said it best as well when she said it felt like a wake it was so dark so quickly and the thing was we were watching results come in and as I said before you know early on it looked like things were going Hillary Clinton's way um, but it was watching it was like watching a car accident and you knew you were going to crash into the brick wall and you couldn't stop it but you had to stay in you had to watch it and then it crashed it was it was clear I think from you know maybe 9.30 that one she wasn't going to win outright on the night. And then I think within a space of half an hour, it looked like she was not going to win the White House. And very clear, 
became that Donald Trump was and that realisation particularly for a campaign that had led all the way and I think particularly for people following the results you know people were looking at the New York Times probability tracker which was particularly volatile but for the first time ever it made Donald Trump the more likely candidate to win the White House and it felt like at that moment that was spreading like wildfire and everyone was going actually you know what we might we might be in big trouble here and yeah as you say the mood shifted dramatically quickly and then it wasn't it wasn't sadness but it was just shock it was a really interesting experience and um, one that I'll definitely remember for a long time two things I think first is one Hillary Clinton supporters were dealing with the fact that their candidate had lost so they were losers on the night the second thing I think is the Hillary Clinton campaign has spent the better part of six months painting Donald Trump to be a monster painting him to be you know the end of America and its values as we know it so for the realization first particularly Clinton supporters to go hang on we've not only lost the election but now this man that has been sold to us as a monster essentially is going to be president was frightening I, I sensed fear in that building as well it wasn't just that Hillary Clinton lost it was fear for what was to come and I heard one woman overheard one woman say to another does this mean that America hates women and I think she meant by electing Donald Trump not necessarily just by not electing Hillary Clinton the mainstream media have been widely criticised by Donald Trump throughout this election campaign. He's been saying that polls are rigged and inaccurate, and it turns out that at least the inaccurate part um, is absolutely true. And I feel like watching some of the cable news today, it's a real day of reckoning for a lot of the pollsters and the mainstream media who just got it so completely wrong. What do you think it was that was behind um, such a, a failing of um, those institutions to see this coming and a failure of the Hillary Clinton camp and the Democratic Party to see this coming? It's really interesting you say that because Donald Trump sold himself as Mr. Brexit as well, you know. and he Bigger than Brexit. Bigger than Brexit. Brexit plus Brexit times 50, I think, was a few of his examples. Um, and we even did a piece about polling where we put it to pollsters, and Michael Vincent did the story, asking them, is this Brexit? And they said no, because Brexit, it was a lot closer. Brexit, there wasn't as much polling. There was so much data that was put into this American presidential election campaign. So, but at the same time, as you were saying before, the narrative in our storytelling and the people we were meeting on the campaign trail did not match the polling. And I think one of the best examples from our own perspective, living in a place like Washington DC, a, a big city, um, is that you'd go half an hour outside of the city and you'd be in Virginia or Maryland or West Virginia and every second house was a Donald Trump sign. You know, you go anywhere else, and uh, I know Bureau Chief Zoe Daniels talked about this when she was road tripping through Ohio last week as well, was she saw one, maybe two Hillary Clinton signs for the, the whole time. And I think that really goes to what this election was ultimately about. While Hillary Clinton was the first female presidential candidate and had a huge brand recognition, this election wasn't really about her in the end. It was about Donald Trump and it was about the fact that Donald Trump had inspired a base of people who feels disaffected and forgotten 
and fed up and they wanted to blow the system up. In the final week of the campaign, when Donald Trump was doing five, six rallies a day, the vision of cars parked on the side of highways with people just clambering over fences to get to rallies said it all to me. I mean, there's no way. I don't. I do not understand how the polling was so wrong, but there is no way that Hillary Clinton was drawing crowds like Donald Trump. And we talked about it early on that it was just interest and it was entertainment. But it was so much more than that in the end. It really hit me when I was in Florida last week and went to a Hillary Clinton rally and there were several hundred people and then went to a Donald Trump rally and it was at the showgrounds. It looked like the Rolling Stones were supposed to appear and that was on a weekday in the early afternoon and it all of a sudden occurred to me that despite the Hillary Clinton campaign having a really good ground game, lots of people door knocking, making phone calls um, in a very strategic, very data driven way. If you can get 20,000 people to stand around for several hours on a weekday lining up to see you, they can get to a polling booth and they will vote. And I think there was a real expectation that Donald Trump's supporters were just, it was all hype and it was, as you say, it was just the, the curiosity factor. But I'm sorry, if they're going to commit that much time um, and you know, you look at how much Donald Trump merchandise they all wear, um, it, it's indicative of something much more and much deeper. And the other thing I think, um, and it's shifted a bit uh, closer towards election day that the, the media largely missed is, I think, yeah, particularly those, you know, yeah, East Coast city-centric media outlets really in America really focused a lot on the things Donald Trump was saying that were shocking, i.e. his comments about building a wall on the Mexican border, his comments about Muslim immigration. And because he delivers such perfect sound bites, that's what the media would grab onto. But there's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of his supporters, they see more nuance in that. When he made his comment about rapists and all that sort of thing, he worded it incredibly poorly. But essentially he was saying is there are some problems, or the way his supporters hear it is there are some problems, we need to fix them. Uh, but the way it's presented is it's this um, incredibly racist, judgmental kind of comment. But the thing the media was missing when they were too busy talking about those rather sensationalist aspects to Donald Trump was the fact that first and foremost when I asked people why they were supporting Donald Trump what they would say is it's because the establishment is corrupt we want to get money out of politics we want someone who's a non-politician we're fed up and that is a very different thing and that's an ideological movement that's not a policy thing um, and you can see how people would be motivated to vote for that. So my question is if Bernie Sanders had won the Democratic primary and he was against Donald Trump, would he have won the election? That's a really good question. And I think there's going to be a lot of soul searching in the Democratic Party to work out whether that is the case, would have been the case. And because Bernie Sanders appealed to those very states that Hillary Clinton lost in the, in the firewall. He spent a lot of time in Michigan. He spent time in Wisconsin. I mean, he was appealing. And this is the thing with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, two outsider candidates that came from very different parts of the political spectrum and you know they both diagnosed the same illness with America but they had very different cures to the problem and I wonder then you know the, the Democratic Party obviously selected Hillary Clinton and you know WikiLeaks and things like that suggest that they, they kind of selected her a long time ago I mean she had waited in line so long to be the candidate um, to run for president and maybe the Democratic Party just missed it that 
the tides were turning in America way before this and that they were fed up and, you know, government had essentially ground to a halt in Washington. And final thoughts here on the Acela Express heading from New York to Washington DC before we hand over to our colleagues Brooke Wiley and Michael Vincent. What are your final thoughts, Roscoe? My final thoughts are America is still incredibly divided. And if you have the chance to look at the electoral map, go to states and look at those maps because it Democrats barely won any land mass in America. They won big cities only. You know, the population in big cities overwhelmingly voted for Democrats. The rest of America did not. And to me, that's the most worrisome thing about the entire election that we saw last night, was that America is so divided and almost two different Americas. There's cosmopolitan America and then there is regular rural America. And what Donald Trump did was run up those rural areas more than Mitt Romney ever did and mobilise that base of supporters. And, you know, even tonight we saw in New York City thousands of progressives who live in a big city who were chanting, not our president, down the streets. And that is because America is a big country. It's bigger in land mass than Europe. It is like 50 states of America that are 50 countries of America. And until you live here and you spend time traveling between the states, you don't realize how diverse they are. And there is a lot of work to be done to bring those two sides of politics and America back together. My final thought is on that vein and seeing those thousands of people walking through the streets of Manhattan tonight. Um, yeah, just chanting everything they could that was hateful towards Donald Trump uh, really made me wonder about whether or not this country will be able to be unified, especially when it seems at this point in time many of these progressives and people on the left are still quite dismissive of the people that supported Donald Trump um, and they're coming from a very different part of America, as you say, and they have different concerns, concerns which to some extent have really been dismissed by the left and by the Democrats and even if they do disagree with those concerns they have to listen to them because that's half of America. So on that note we will hand over to Brooke and Michael in New York. Thank you very much guys. What a night. Brooke, first thoughts, first memories? First memories were probably the chaos uh, right outside the hotel when we were moving into our live positions to do our crosses. Uh, we had two huge media pits uh, right outside the Hilton Hotel where the Trump event was taking place. And just thousands of international press gathered there to report on who was going to be the next president. Supporters, protesters, the massive trucks were brought in to protect the building as a physical barrier. And then, yeah, the, the satellite trucks everywhere, the chaos, the police. And then once you're inside, it was the sort of sort of hotel foyer, surreal, sort of surreal moment where people are standing around in those big red Make America Great Again hats. and So know. many hats. So All the hats. So many Every hats. hat was in that foyer. There were cowboy hats in there too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was some, yeah, it was, a, it was a surreal night. I mean, we had access to some of the Republican hierarchy, which was fascinating. Um, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani came past. Uh, we saw Sean Spicer, the spokesman for the RNC, one of the strategists of the campaign. Uh, we saw a bunch of Donald Trump's friends. Uh, we saw uh, advisors like Mark McKinnon, who've helped George W. Bush, John McCain. 
there was George Pataki. That was the that was the moment of the night I realised, wow. Some friends, some foes, some friends again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just, just <laughs> hard the, to the, track the uh, friendships was, within the RNC at the moment. I think. Yeah. So you had uh, the, that was that was weird. Was to see this guy who'd bagged Donald Trump mercilessly, one of the sixteen other candidates, seventeen other candidates, um, former governor of New York, George Pataki, turn up all smiles, looking forward to a great night. You're like, uh huh, uh huh. <laughs> bitter, bitter pills. But then you know your party's in. You know, well at that time we didn't know who was going to win. Yeah. Uh, but there was obviously some buzz around the building that they were feeling like it wasn't going to be dire. It was definitely going to be a strong showing. It was just going to be how close could they possibly get there, I think. I, I will never forget those the roar mm. reverberating around the building when Fox News, and it was Fox, called North Carolina. Mm. That was a real turning point, I think, is when we started to see those really crucial battleground states results coming in and they were close but they were going red and you could really feel the energy within the building. And, and you know, so the the bulk of the group were in the big ballroom at the Hilton, but then there were a lot of supporters floating around in the, the corridors. The corridors and, and the on bar. On the escalators at yeah. the bar. Yeah. And so there was a massive energy really throughout at least three levels of the hotel. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. As those results started coming in for those battleground states, I felt there was a definite mood shift and you started to see some of the more vocal outsider supporters getting their signs out and sort of chanting and yelling, we're doing it. You know, they started to feel very confident after so many people for so long had told them that they wouldn't be able to do it and then he would never win. And then the moment, of course, we weren't sure whether he was going to come out and speak and eventually um, we thought, my God, we might be here for another, you know, 12 hours. We might be back here in the morning. We might mm. be here, like, if, it's, if there's a state that's borderline, you know. So it was around 3 a.m. that he came out yeah. and uh, addressed that crowd and said... Secretary Clinton has just called me to concede and congratulate us. And that was sort of a, a bit of a, a goosebump moment there. I think with any presidential election, if you're a politic nut like we all are here in the Bureau, mm. it's, you know, hearing those words is an exciting time. But to see him as well, this such this controversial figure who yeah. has just been underestimated right from the get-go consistently through the primaries and then throughout this election as well to just say those words, she's conceded. With all of that baggage that he brought, it is stunning that um, people just went, yeah, don't care, you're our man. And he's inspired so much, um, I guess, love from those people who see him as their hero and champion and so much hate because of the things he has said, the people he has targeted and all of that. And that's, and that's, that's what, you know, I mean, throughout that night, you know, as we, you know, kept hitting our marks and, and crossing to back to Australia and telling people back in Australia what was going on, it was kind of important to kind of remember that, that, you know, just because he has won this election, that is not going to go away. All those issues within his party are not going to go away. All those issues with those groups that feel targeted and hated by him and the fear that that inspired is not going to go away. And the very next day, mm. on the streets of New York... Same day, sort of. That, the oh, day that right. never was... ended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember having breakfast at 3 o'clock in the afternoon going... <laughs> what, where are we? What yeah, day what is doing? it? So we didn't wrap up, I think, our actual crosses until sort of 6.30 in the morning. No, and no, then... it was actually... No, it was 7. Um, <clears> I remember <throat> clearly it was, it was just... About seven o'clock in the morning, by the time we got all the got gear out outside, 
yeah. into a taxi back to the mm-hmm. hotel. Um, I think it was 8.30 in the morning. I went to bed. I woke up three hours later to hear Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Yep. Mm. I saw that speech and that was a pretty classy speech. But mm. um, then sort of went out um, after filing that about, about 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the afternoon, get breakfast and... Oh, okay. There's a few protests around. No, you know, no yeah. big deal. Yeah. But by the end of that night, wow. Yeah, I've never seen a crowd like it. It was uh, at at least five blocks along Fifth Avenue. So from, well, actually, no, it must have been more than that. Uh, because our I think it was six producer, or seven. I mean, it was Roscoe Whalen and Stephanie March were also down there early and spotted the protest quite early. And I think that they were down towards 30th Street. So there was, we're there was, talking yeah. like a yeah. dozen or so blocks of just thousands and thousands and thousands of mostly millennials. Very angry young people. Yeah. And I, I got the impression from a lot of the issues that they were uh, discussing and chanting about that perhaps they would have been the Bernie supporters, the Bernie millennials. But I, I don't want to make an assumption about that. But they, they seem to fit that kind of... Um, demographic and cause. All uh, peaceful. Or, mm. I mean, the New York police, and this is something that I think is pretty amazing because in other countries it does not exist. The, the New York police, First Amendment, right to free speech, right, these people are allowed to protest. They're going to walk down here. We're going to walk with them. We're going to have a, a, an area set up for them to protest. And people literally were stuck in their cars, weren't they? That's right. There was a section on, was it 57th and 5th, where there had been barricades placed and there were thousands of people crammed into this intersection and there were cars with people still in their cars, had just been trapped in the mass of people and couldn't get out. And I would not have wanted to be in one of those cars, especially if they didn't have a good sense of what was going on when they first got stuck in the traffic. And then you sort of think like, who are these people? Are they going to be violent? I'm stuck here. It would have been a really stressful experience. But there was like cabs and personal people, like personal drivers. It wasn't just like, it wasn't all cabs. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was, I, get, I got no sense. I've been to a few protests in my time and even riots where the violence has broken out. Mm. I didn't get a sense of any of that. I just got a sense of a lot of anger. People were thumping things and, you yeah. know. It wasn't a violent energy. It didn't feel no, like it was going no, to No, it was turn. just a really angry, frustrated, mm. our side didn't win, um, a man who we don't respect who, who, you know, and there were a lot of people there with issues they wanted to talk to us about. Mm. A young black woman very upset about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and really upset of being, you know, wanting a woman, female first president. You know, women's issue is not going to be um, uh, given as much priority. And then and- another young woman that you spoke to who was uh, really concerned about, you know, the sexual assault allegations against Trump. And oh, she was absolutely. afraid for herself and yeah. other women yeah. about what essentially ignoring yes. those allegations could mean and how that could make uh, stop women coming acceptable. forward. Yeah. Stop women coming forward, yeah. yes, through threats of um, lawsuits and whatnot, but also, you know, sending a message that that behaviour is just, you know, boys being boys yeah. and is tolerable. Now, we don't obviously know for sure whether or not those allegations are true, but the yeah. fact that it was set aside, I think, has made a lot of women feel especially um, the Democratic women, but I think yeah. women generally feel like their voices didn't matter in that sense. Yeah, I'm happy to share this. I, I actually got, um, I have friends in the Latino community here and their children were in tears. They were afraid to go to school, um, afraid about what's going to happen in the future. And that's why I thought it was absolutely fascinating. The very next, like within hours of Donald Trump being called president-elect, 
his chief of staff, his uh, the rights previous, the head of the Republican National Committee, went on live television to say, "Oh no, deportation force, no, no, we're not doing that now." That's not happening. But you know, you know, this... they can talk, they can walk that stuff back. Mm. But they sold. This is the other thing. So much. I mean, even the wall. One of his Hispanic advisory council guys was saying, "Oh, that was more metaphorical." I'm going to be fascinated by how much, like, the, of the 20 promises he's made, mm. you know, let's just say arguably 20 promises he's made, of which, you know, people might have heard two or three, they went, yeah, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. How many of those he's just, he's just going Actually to go, Actually going to be implemented. Nah, not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. But I think within that crowd environment in the protest last night, and, and also, I mean, this protest was happening right around the country. Yep. It was also happening cities, in Chicago yeah. and San Francisco and a number yeah. of other major cities. But the sheer volume of people and the different individual issues that they yes. had with the president-elect speaks volumes, I think, about how uh, controversial and divisive this election has been and how many different groups feel alienated or targeted by who is now America's president-elect. And so there is a lot of healing to be done, not just within the Republican Party. Yeah. That's its own battle. That's yeah, yeah, its yeah. own huge mission that, you know, the Speaker has been coming out and sort of speaking about, Paul Ryan, this is speaking about unifying the party and how Donald Trump has a mandate. So that's that. But just to bringing together this country again. Yeah. It's a very diverse nation. Absolutely. And, and there have been people critical of the protesters saying, ah, well, you said Donald Trump wouldn't accept the result. What about you? And I agree. I think that that, you know, it is it speaks to the to that whole thing of oh, the, the election's over. Let's just move on. Well, you know, no, the election ha- is, is, is over. Uh, and this is what U.S. democracy looks like because mm-hmm. he won the majority of um, electoral college votes. Mm. But people still have the right to uh, protest. And even mm-hmm. if Donald Trump had lost, people would be out, possibly be out there protesting. And I, I, you know, that's their right to protest, and that's, I think that's totally fine. What will be interesting to see now is where does that anger and frustration go? Does it go back into the political process, or does it go into some sort of campaign of uh, rallies outside the White House, on the Mall, you know, um, basically trying to um, undermine his presidency um, or attack him at every turn. And that is what will be interesting to see whether this, um, whether that protest is, you know, directed into some into the political into process, into another movement of yes. some sort, or yes. you know, and who leads that movement? We've ah. heard, you know, we've had a number of those politicians who you would think would be the traditional leaders. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who might be able to harness that energy and speak to that group and use it in a political way. It's going to be a fascinating. Oh wow, you know, just four years, four years, <laughs> and um, you know, um, I have been, you know, very, very happy and 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 proud to have covered that part of it for the ABC. I'm out of here in four weeks, so that's probably the, the last, you know, I assume that's the last major yarn for me. <laughs> well, never say never. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing the experience with me. I really appreciate your help on the night. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Now we're going to hand over to Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel, fresh back into the office from Pennsylvania, of course, New York. And joining her again is Roscoe Whalen. Okay. And now I'm back in DC like magic to end this podcast. And I found the Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Welcome back. I've emerged from the wilderness. <laughs> 48 hours ago, we were, was it 48 hours ago? We were in Hillary Clinton HQ. Probably at this point, the early numbers were coming in and we were expecting victory for Hillary Clinton. What a difference a couple of days make. Yes. I must say that expectation of victory, I don't know about you, but for me, was extremely fleeting. Mm. My feeling 
the day before the election, the morning before the election was that it was going to be extremely tight. When those early numbers started coming in, particularly from Florida, of course there was a big flood of votes because of all the early voters there. And that lead was changing, you know, flipping um, minute by minute for quite some time. But as soon as Donald Trump started getting a bit of a foothold in Florida, I honestly immediately thought he's going to win this election. Just seemed to be the way that it was going to flow. And, of course, that is what played out. And you and I, I think, because in the planning of this election throughout the year, have probably done this every, I think, couple of weeks where one of us has come back from somewhere or done a story about something. And it started at the convention, certainly, where every couple of weeks you and I said to each other, I think he's going to win. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, my husband's a pretty good barometer. I'll just give Rowan a little bit of kudos <laughs> Shout out, here. Rowan. Um, I mean, we talk about it a lot. Obviously, we have talked about it a lot. And I've been in the field meeting people and then we'll come home and report back saying, you know, I think there's a huge amount of momentum there, but perhaps what I'm seeing is skewed because I'm meeting a lot of Donald Trump supporters. I'm going to areas where there are a lot of Donald Trump supporters and it's very hard to sort of get a bird's eye view across the whole country. Um, But as I was leaving uh, to go wherever I was going uh, before the election, (laughs) life's a bit of a blur. Um, The the last time I left, um, Rowan said, he's going to win. So, you know, he should get a job as a pollster. (laughs) Well, there'll be a lot of jobs going as a pollster. Our bank account might be a lot more healthy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I mean, after that, and I think this goes to show the kind of people we met and the fact that there are just so many Donald Trump supporters out there was we very quickly got you moving and put you on a plane to the Donald Trump heartland, which was, in this case, Western Pennsylvania. And I was able to make a phone call at 3 a.m. And um, Mike McMullen, um, who is a delegate uh, at the Republican National Convention, picked up the phone within half a ring and just started laughing. He was totally exuberant that Donald Trump had won. There are a lot of Donald Trump supporters out there. Yeah, and we've found throughout the campaign, haven't we, that they've been a lot easier to find than Hillary Clinton supporters. I mean, someone did say to me, a Hillary Clinton supporter said to me in the days leading up to the election, you know, I I don't think um, there's more of them, they're just louder. Um, And in the end, she won the popular vote. Um, So she sort of did have more support marginally, nationally, but not enough to win the Electoral College. Um, But Donald Trump supporters were very vocal and keen to have their voices heard. And this kind of goes to the whole underlying issue that drove his support, people feeling like they weren't being listened to, that their issues weren't being considered by people that they considered to be elitists in Washington who were living in sort of urban bubbles and had no regard for the issues affecting the so-called real people of America, those inland people, those working-class families in the the industrial cities that have been hit hard by changes to technology and economic shocks in recent years. And I guess that reflects the fact that we've been able to speak to these people very easily and they've sort of been everywhere and, and keen to talk about why they support him. And I think it's really important to probably dispel the myth as well that because Donald Trump said xenophobic, bigoted, sometimes sexist things throughout the campaign, that all of his supporters agree with those things and that is why they voted for him. It couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, clearly some of his supporters agree with some of his positions on those things. By and large, the supporters that I've spoken to don't like those comments that he's made, but they like other things about him enough to ignore that. Um, And they kind of see him as 
a bit of a big mouth who runs off but doesn't necessarily mean what he says. Um, there was a really good article that was in, I think it was at the the Atlantic, that said the the media takes Donald Trump literally but not seriously and his supporters take him seriously but not literally. And I think that is actually a perfect encapsulation of the fact that when he does run off of the mouth like that, his supporters sort of chuck that out into the rubbish straight away and say, oh, that's just the way he is. He's the kind of guy who likes to talk it up in that way. He doesn't really mean it. Now, I'm not justifying it. Don't get me wrong. His language around women, um, people of different racial backgrounds, disabled people, and some of his policies um, are very concerning in terms of the social structure of this country. But what I'm saying is that his supporters, by and large, will accept it on the basis that they think there are other things about him that will make life better for them. So you're saying when you flew into Western Pennsylvania the day after the election, there weren't people with pitchforks waiting for you in this scary Donald Trump supporter way? No, they invited (laughs) us into their homes and talked to us and then took us out for a beer and uh, took us to a Donald Trump supporter party and fed us cake (laughs) and uh, tried to give us champagne and they were extremely (laughs) excited to see us and really proud that... um, of what they felt that they'd managed to achieve. Um, And, you know, I guess they felt to an extent like they were invisible um, or voiceless. There's been talk about the forgotten people um, of America in a sense that Donald Trump saw them. And he's a populist, right? So he targeted to an extent people that, would listen to the sort of, sorts of things that he had to say. But in doing that, he reached people who just felt like no one cared about them for so long and who feel so disconnected to the political class here. And I'm just thinking, you getting, getting offered champagne and eating cupcakes with the Trump supporters is just so far from what... I was going through at the same time last night, which was trying to wheel my bags through a protest of thousands of people in New York City um, who are protesting uh, Donald Trump's election and the fact that they're chanting, not our president, not our president, and we're still seeing it going on tonight. Mm. And it just goes to show how divided America is. I think it's really worrying. Um, You know, you have two groups of people who are so different from each other. And it struck me most actually at the Hillary Clinton event that we're at on election night, which was like being at some sort of gigantic funeral when the results were literally playing out on a big screen and people were weeping and or else just staring into space in some sort of shocked days. Um, But talking to some of those people about what was happening as it became apparent that he was going to win the election... I realised that probably most of them had never spoken to a Donald Trump Mm. supporter, just could not relate to Donald Trump supporters at all, don't understand what drives them and feel that those people have ruined their country, uh, have sort of ended the world as they know it. It it was kind of like they felt like their country had been taken over by aliens. Mm. They just don't get it. And until those groups of people start trying to understand each other better, there will be this awful divide. And it is concerning on the basis that the inflammatory rhetoric that 
Donald Trump has used during the campaign, and maybe in part it was to get himself elected, we'll see if he tones it down, but has to some degree given licence to a an extreme element in the community that uh, creates potential for clashes between those groups of people, and, and that's really sad. I think it's almost like you need a cultural exchange from rural <laughs> to cities in America to learn, which I think is what made today so important. You know, two days after the election, America talks a lot about the peaceful transition of power. And we saw today two men meet for the first time, President Barack Obama and President-elect Donald Trump, and they have said some pretty, uh, you know, tough things about each other dating back to the fact that Donald Trump was really the pro proponent behind the birther movement that suggested that, uh, you know, Barack Obama has to show his birth certificate um, to remain president. Today they met in the White House, in the Oval Office. How important do you think that moment was, Zoe? Uh, well, it's good optics. <laughs> um, how meaningful it is remains to be seen. Um, I mean, I think we all know that Barack Obama is a conciliator, um, mm. And that's the approach he's taking to this. He obviously believes very strongly in peaceful transition. He knows that there's huge division. He doesn't want to arc that up any further. Um, he's no doubt devastated around what's happened in the sense that his legacy will largely be lost because their policies are so polarised. But he's vowing to help Donald Trump. Um and that is a good thing, and it's a great example to set in a community that's extremely divided. Um, I guess the Donald Trump that we saw, that we've seen since he won the election, is the I'm going to be presidential and keep myself nice and watch my P's and Q's Donald Trump. That's quite a different Donald Trump than the one you see when he's out amongst his rank-and-file supporters where he sort of amps up the rhetoric to feed that, that populist um, persona that he's developed. So how does he sustain something between that that's reasonable for a four-year presidency? That's going to be extremely interesting, particularly given those divisive, controversial policies that we've talked about, the... Um, extreme vetting of Muslims, the potential deportation of illegal immigrants splitting families, the building of a wall across the Mexican border, the repealing of Roe versus Wade and abortion rights, all of those things that really are deep-seated social issues in a way and go to the values of the people in the country that are so split. You know, I don't want to go on too much, but I think the, the favourite story that we've done during this campaign in a way was when we sat a Democrat and a Republican down for dinner in Ohio and just filmed them having a meal and having a conversation. And it was very revealing because it revealed their different points of view, but it also revealed that they were able to sit down together and have a reasonable discussion without coming to blows. And I think they found it extremely valuable as well. And in a way, I was reminded of that looking at Donald Trump and Barack Obama in the Oval Office today. Um, you know, a Democrat and a Republican sit down in the Oval Office. Sounds like a beginning of a joke. But they <laughs> planned a 15-minute meeting and it went for an hour and a half. Um, Barack Obama said, you know, nice things about feeling reassured, I guess, having had a conversation with Donald Trump. It's the first time they've met. Donald Trump said he had great respect for Barack Obama and that he hopes to meet him repeatedly again and use his counsel. In other words, use his advice. So... 
it's a good starting point after a pretty toxic year. And then Donald Trump went to Capitol Hill. (laughs) (laughs) And he met with Republicans, Republicans that haven't been seen with Donald Trump before. Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, he has towed a very fine line for the past six months or so, since Donald Trump became the nominee, you know, tossing and turning between supporting Donald Trump but not saying his name, to not appearing with him, but to telling Republicans, you're on your own, it's every man for themselves. How opportunistic is the Republican Party at this point to now say, Donald Trump performed this incredible feat and we're all for him? I have to say I burst out laughing when Paul Ryan, sitting next to Donald Trump, said, this has been a terrific victory, make America great again. (laughs) I I almost fell off my chair. This is a guy who has struggled so fundamentally with Donald Trump's candidacy, who in the end didn't disavow Donald Trump but basically said he wasn't going to campaign for him after the infamous Hollywood tape about grabbing women in the wrong places came out, did eventually vote for Donald Trump but really had not been a supporter. And now Donald Trump has pulled off this stunning victory really by anyone's sort of measure and kind of put the Republican Party in a pretty awesome position with control of the Senate and the House and the ability to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court. And Paul Ryan was eating humble pie. <laughs> but the funniest thing too as well was that Donald Trump and Melania Trump, Donald Trump's wife, were sitting there next to Paul Ryan and they both looked totally shell-shocked as well. <laughs> it was almost like they were suddenly struck with the realisation that they're moving to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> They're the new neighbours moving into the neighbourhood. <laughs> it's going to be fascinating because um, Donald Trump was the outsider candidate and he has gone not only on the message of Make America Great Again but in most recent times, Drain the Swamp. And people like Paul Ryan who flip-flop and take positions how they suit them, being opportunistic like this, are exactly the kind of thing that Donald Trump supporters are fed up with. So it will be really interesting to see how Donald Trump can, one, work with Republicans, but at the same time um, keep the bastards honest, basically, which is basically the mantra that he ran on. Yeah, he's got that mandate to uh, run the country like a business too. Mm. So that will mean probably, or I think certainly, that uh, many of those he'll surround himself with in his cabinet and in high-level bureaucratic positions will be out of private enterprise. Uh, a different type of person um, to, I guess, diversify the Washington establishment. There's many negatives about Donald Trump. That particular thing may be positive, depending who he puts in. Mm. But, um, you know, at the very least, it will crack the closed shop, if you like, of Washington, D.C. And you may see some pretty high-profile casualties too as he uh, tries to, you know, change it up um, and, I I guess, destructure that whole um, framework that exists here that keeps normal people out, basically. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we'll be watching the D structure over the next couple of months. I mean, now we're going to wait and see who he appoints to to be in his cabinet, who, how the inauguration goes, how that transition of power happens, and how Democrats and Republicans learn to work with Donald Trump, in particular, whether or not he, as you say, remains presidential. Yeah, and then we'll get on to the really hard stuff, which is how he's going to implement these uh, pretty radical policies and how that affects actual people and how that deepens the division and whether, given how deep that division is, he can in some way bring the country together and perhaps find compromises on some of those controversial policies that make them a little bit more palatable because, you know... It's the art of the deal, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We thank you all for listening. We're going to try to go get some sleep because... Bring it on. (laughs) Zoe's had about two hours sleep in the last three days. (laughs) It's been an incredible story so far and we're not going anywhere. No, we are going to continue following this story and continue bringing you guys the podcast explaining what is happening in American politics and how it affects Americans and the world for weeks to come. Thanks for listening and keep tuning in.